primary language is love. That is his language. And he speaks to us all in different ways, but you can, you can take this to the bank. He will speak to you in a way that you can understand. Prophecy is so important for the church. Again, I'm just going to reiterate some things that I've spoken before, but just for the sake of, well, like Paul says it, repetition is the price of knowledge. So I'll repeat it again. Gifts that are given to us are free, right? You don't do anything to get them. You can't earn them. You can't buy them. You can't do anything. They are given to you for free. All you have to do is reach out and grab them. Anybody want to have more of those 1 Corinthians 12 gifts? Word of wisdom, right? Word of knowledge. There's nine of them listed in there. I want all of them. Call me greedy. Call me what you want. I want all of them. Why? Because the fullness of the Godhead gets revealed in the fullness of the gifts that he's listed there. Personally, I believe that there's actually more than nine. There's nine that are listed there. Here, let me tell you why. Am I messing with you now? If you look throughout Old Covenant, you see gifts that are given to people. The reason why nine are listed here is because this book of 1 Corinthians was really... 1 and 2 Corinthians, what we have, was really probably three letters that have been merged into two. And 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to do two things. Number one, set in order a church that had gone off the edge. Number two, to, was to, to defend his apostleship. That's primarily what 2 Corinthians was about. So as we're going through that today, here's what I want us to, to hold on to. That when we look at order in the church that's listed by 1 Corinthians 14, if we reduce it down to structure then we're missing the very heart of God. If we use 1 Corinthians 14 to create structure, we build in a rigidity that has the appearance of godliness, but it's born out of concept and not intimacy. It will allow for the gifts, but it will miss the purpose of the gifts, which is an encounter with Jesus. Do I need to say that again? If we take 1 Corinthians 14 or any scripture for any kind of Christian life, and if we use it to create structure, we build in a rigidity that has the appearance of godliness, but it's born out of concept and not intimacy. Are you tracking with me? So when we look at this, I'm prefacing about what I'm going to do here to make sure that what we do is not building some kind of structure on how the prophetic is supposed to flow when we come together. Because I promise you, as soon as you do that, you have taken God out of the picture, you've taken intimacy out of the picture, and we're so focused on structure and how it's supposed to work that we miss what he's really saying. Remember, this book was written to bring correction to a church that had gone off the deep end. Shall we take a look? 1 Corinthians 14. Let's begin in verse 26. I'm just going to take it kind of verse by verse and unpack it a little bit. Verse 26 says, How is it, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now, isn't this wonderful? How is it, brethren, that whenever you come together, somebody's got a revelation, a tongue, a song? This should be what the church looks like. We have predominantly set up a culture in our Western society where people come to church, sit in chairs, and expect somebody else to do something. When really, every one of us should be coming in with a song, with a hymn, with a revelation, with a tongue, with an interpretation. Every one of us. Why? Because we need it. We need it. I was reading Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, just briefly. And it starts with this, and it says, God, who in various times and in various ways spoke through the prophets to our fathers. 
but now through Jesus Christ. In the Old Covenant, we had a system that was set up where God spoke to us through prophets. That was the mouthpiece of God to speak to his chosen people. There was no church back then as we know it today. There was no church in the sense that we are the church, ecclesia. We are the called out ones. That's what the word means. We are the call- there was no church. There was God's chosen people, right? But now, with the sacrifice of Jesus, he carries all the gifts, all of them, with him in his fullness. He is called prophet. He is called priest. He is called king. He is called the apostle of our high calling. He's called pastor. He is the evangelist, John chapter 4, where he sees the woman at the well. Do you see where I'm going with this? He carries all of these giftings in him. And now we as the church, we get these deposited in us. So when we're looking through this, everybody should have the expectation that God is going to move through me. He's going to give me something. Why is he giving you something for the benefit of everybody around you? Verse 27, verse 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most. Each in turn and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Again, this is not a formula on how to speak in tongues and then interpret. This is a solution to a problem. This whole book is an answer to a problem that is happening within the church. What's happening within the church? I won't read it now, but I'll let you go through it. The first part of 1 Corinthians 14, you have the church coming together and everybody speaking in tongues. And it's wonderful. And Paul says, I'm glad you speak in tongues. As a matter of fact, I speak in tongues more than all of you, and I wish that everyone would speak in tongues. But when you come in in a gathering, I would much rather you prophesy. Because when you prophesy, people understand what you're talking about. Now, how many of you have been through 1 Corinthians 14 before and seen churches set up structures? Okay, we're going to have two people speak in tongues, and we're going to have a person interpret. But remember, if there's no interpreter, then that person needs to keep quiet. You know what you end up with when you set up structures like that? You end up, one person's got a tongue to bring, but they don't know if there's an interpreter, so they don't bring it. Because why? You have to have an interpretation. He's talking about something that's gotten out of order. Here's what what I'm saying with that. I would much rather somebody come in and say, I've got a tongue to share, and then deliver it. And then let's wait for the interpretation. And if there's no interpretation, hallelujah! Did we miss it? No. Here's another thing I've seen with this passage of Scripture. Let two or three at the most, and let one interpret. I have personally had a word in tongues before. That is not my normal speaking in tongues. I speak in tongues all of the time, and I have a language that sounds very familiar to me. At one point, a number of years ago, I felt the Spirit of God come on me, and I, we were all waiting, and, I, and a tongue came out of my mouth that sounded like Swahili. It was the strangest sound. It wasn't a normal sound that came out of my mouth. And I remember two people immediately jumping up and go, I know what that means. But wait a minute. The letter says, well... Yeah, it says one. Let one interpret. But we had two people that had the interpretation. You know why? Because one had one part and the other had the other part of it. Is this making sense? If we take this stuff by the letter, we miss exactly what God's trying to say. We need order inside the church, but more than anything else, we need honor inside the church. And that really is what he's talking about in this entire chapter. He's talking more about honor than he is order. And we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. 
Now that's strange, isn't it? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. This is really vague language. Have you noticed that? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Okay, now you have to ask, who are the others? Who are the others? Hmm. Again, never try to interpret Scripture based on our cultural norms. You have to go back and look. You can't interpret Scripture just based on what we see on it. I love it when people say things to me like, well, what that means to me is this. My question usually follows, well, what did it mean before you came along? What that means to me is this. Well, what did it mean before you came along? I want to know what it really means. I want to know what this is really after. Now, listen, I have spent so much time going through this. I'm not saying I'm a dedicated authority on this, but here's what I've discovered. The culture of the church, the early Christian church, was one that they had people who were mature in the gifts. And what they wanted was to release people to learn because we've already discovered in 1 Corinthians 13, we'll get to it in a moment, where it says you can all prophesy that you all may learn. So what did the mature do? The mature would sit back and make room for somebody else to step in and try it. That's what he's saying right here. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Who are the others? The others were the ones who had a maturity. They had a connection in the body that knew this is what God is doing. They knew this is what the feel of what's happening here. And they wouldn't judge the word by saying, oh, well, that's bad. Don't say that. They would judge it. And when they would judge the word, they would ask the questions, is this for now? Is this for us? Is this for someone else? Let others judge. Now, others were the ones that were sitting by who had more maturity, who understood how it flowed, but wanted to release other people in it. Then you get to the word judge, and you have to ask, what's the word judge mean? We judge the prophetic word. What does that mean? You ever ask yourself that question? What does it mean? What does judging the prophetic word mean? Judge. The word judge means to evaluate, to recognize, and to make a distinction. That's literally what it means. To evaluate, to recognize, and make a distinction. Oftentimes, we we think it has to do with judging a prophetic word means that you're judging it to see whether it's holy or demonic. And that's as far as we go. It's so much deeper than that. As a matter of fact, my concern primarily is not with a word being released and trying to discover if it's holy or demonic. I think that's the easiest thing to discern. That is so easy to discern that. If it's demonic, we know what it's going to look like. And I'll get to that in just a moment. If it's holy, we feel it. But it's not so much about is it holy or is it demonic. This is why we do what we do here. Judging the word is about time, application, content, and subject. Because it could be totally the word of the Lord, but not be the right time. Hello, are you with me? We could feel the spirit of God moving and taking us in a certain direction corporately as a body. And somebody could bring something that's very biblical and very strong, but it's not what God's doing right now. So it's not the application. It's not the right time for that application to happen. Is this making sense? So what do we do here? Now, I'm not saying we have the end all on how we do things here. We don't. And God, in his mercy and his grace, if we have something wrong here, he'll reveal it to us and we'll keep rolling with him. I think it's interesting that throughout this passage of Scripture and other passages of Scripture that have to do with leadership in the church and church function, there's a lot of ambiguity in it. And I think it's God, the Jehovah trickster. Why do I think he's tricking us? He's not really tricking us. What he's doing is he's saying, listen, if I give you everything laid out, what you will do is revert to the formula and forget me. 
That's exactly what you'll do. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? We know what it's like even in Christianity. We would feel so much better if somebody would say, do this, do this, do this, and don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Now, all of us would say at some level, wait a minute, I'm, a dependent, I'm independent, I can think for myself. But really, inside, that's what we want. Because it's so much easier to do that once somebody tells me what to do. Just tell me what to do, and I'll go do it. Jehovah Trickster says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to set it up with a little ambiguity in there, so I'm going to force you to keep coming back to me. Is this okay? Is this what you want, Lord? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, okay. We'll follow that. That's good. So we have systems and structures set up even here within our house. Why do we have that? Because it's perfect? Absolutely not. But this is how we judge prophetic words when we come together. You probably noticed it happening this morning. We have a few people in here that we just call checkpoints. They're just checkpoints. Jody, George is not here, Lynn, my wife, Jocelyn, Paul, Andy, uh, Danielle in the back, Joe, Diane. Are these people the elite? No, they're not the elite at all. It's just people that we know we're on the same page with. And when people have prophetic words, what we're simply doing is let them go to them, that individual, so they can judge the word. What are they judging? If it's holy or demonic? No. They're judging to find out, is this the right time? Here's the thing, guys. The same people who are the checkpoints, if you've noticed, whenever they get a word, they go to somebody else too. All we're simply doing is trying to find out, is this the right time? Is this the right place? We had some words received this morning that were very good words, right? Everybody, did anybody connect with any of those words? You felt like, yeah, that was good. That was for me. That's wonderful. That's why we have those things released. I believe, personally, the best time for the prophetic to be released is out of worship. Because your focus is in the right spot, hopefully. We're, hearing, we're, we're saying, Lord, reckless abandon. Everything I'm doing, I'm giving to you. I'm just worshiping you. I'm saying this is everything. It's just about you. And it's in that place. It's usually where the Lord will show up and begin to speak to us. How do we judge that word then? We ask this. And here's something I'm going to lay out for us. Since I want prophecy to flow like a river, I want it to flow like a river. But I also recognize rivers have banks. A river that doesn't have banks is a flood. And floods hurt people. Rivers have banks. What I really want is to see the prophetic flow like a river. So whenever you're getting a word, here's something you can usually ask yourself. Usually these four things. And I ask myself this too. Number one, is this for now? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Because God isn't stuck and held in by time. He may be showing you something that that could be something that's a revelation of something that happened a while back that you don't understand or something that could happen in the future. Is this for now? Here's the next question. You ready? Is it for me? Is this for me? Because some prophetic words are for you. God speaks to you because he has something for you. Hello? So is it for now? The next one, is it for me? The next one is, is it for somebody else? Is it for somebody else? Come on, guys. This is good stuff I'm giving you right here. Is it for somebody else? Meaning you might get a prophetic word that may not be for you. It may not be for, for some other time or for now. It just may be for somebody here in the room or somebody outside the room. The next question, the last one is, is this for the body? Is this helpful to you? It should be because I want to demystify this stuff. I really do. I want to demystify it and go, just ask ourselves the question. Lord, is this for me? Is this for now? Is this for somebody else in this room? Or is it for the body? So much can be discovered if we take time just to run through those things. I don't believe God is some kind of mystical character up there teasing us and giving us just enough to make us 
be stupid. I, I don't think that's what he's trying to do. His heart is to communicate love. His heart is to edify, to build up, to encourage. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Edify, build up, encourage. Is it for now? Is it for me? Is it for another? Or is it for the body? When we have these checkpoints, I'm not saying this is the end-all way to do it. I'm just saying this is what we have and this is what we feel conviction about. Hopefully this is making sense this morning. We just simply know, I recognize that we have very little time together in a corporate sense, and I want to get what God's saying. I want to get it. I want to get it as best we can. I know that we have, and I want things to come, and some things will land, some things will stick. It's like, in some ways, prophecy is like coming in, and you take mud, and you throw it on the wall, and you just see how much is going to stay there. Some of it sticks. Some of it doesn't. It's okay. What we're really looking for is what's really applicable to what God's doing right now. Look at verse 31. It goes on to say here, For you all can prophesy one by one. Come on, that's good news. You all can prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be what? encouraged wow so this is this is how it works so we can learn and we can be encouraged but again we have to remember this is not a this is a literary statement not a literal statement if it if it, we took it literal you all can prophesy one by one then we'd have to line everybody up here let everybody go everybody's got to prophesy that's not what he's talking about remember again he's setting things in order that were wrong It's about the atmosphere. It's about the greater understanding that there's learning, there's encouragement that needs to go on here. Look at verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are what? Subject to the prophets. Hmm. That's interesting. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The one who proclaims God's message has personal control over when and what to say. It's true. God in his infinite wisdom has subjected himself to humanity it's crazy isn't it does that sound like the gospel that's what he did god all everything he needed fully everything he needed jesus says i'll humble myself i'll set aside my divine prerogative i will take on the form of humanity because god is spirit right I'll take on the form of humanity and I'll condescend to the degree that I will place myself in front of them and I will let them kill me. That's crazy. That right there is the highest wisdom you'll ever hear. That is the highest wisdom on this planet that we could ever understand that God would condescend to the point that humanity, his own creation that rebelled against him, he would allow them to kill Jesus ultimately to bring us back into relationship. That is ludicrous. That is bonkers. That's scandalous. That's what that is. That kind of gospel to say to somebody, yeah, God did this. He sent his son. We like that part, and we preach that a lot. God sent his son, and you know what? We kill him. And you know what? He had it as plan A the entire time. There was never a plan B. He doesn't have plan Bs. God's not sitting up in heaven going, oh, God, I wonder what's going to happen with all of this stuff. What are they going to do? He knows. He knows. We like to do things and say things like, God is in control. Well, he's not. He's not. He has all authority. He has all authority. He's not in control. God doesn't want to control. As a matter of fact, when humanity is filled with the Spirit, 
we start to give off these gifts or these fruit. And one of them is self-control. Just a thought. God doesn't want robots walking around going, I worship you. He never wanted that. What he started with in the, in the beginning, in the garden, was choice. I'm like, think about this for a minute. He creates, out of everything is perfect. Why didn't he just say, you know what? In order to avoid all this problem, I'm not going to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in there. I'm just going to put the tree of life in there. But he didn't do that, did he? He puts the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He puts it in the garden. Why? Because he wanted us to have choice. We still have choice. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. You know why? Jesus comes along, sets everything back. What was lost in the Garden of Eden was regained in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said these words, not my will, but your will be done, right? Choice. Choice. Choosing. No, not me, but you. Everything was set right. Now, we still have a choice. We can still choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. We have it. Totally ready for us in our Christianity, in our New Testament Christianity. We have it. That's why I say be careful with passages like this. Because if we're not careful, we'll take it for the letter of the law, and the letter kills. The Spirit gives life. Remember, he's addressing a problem here. We can take it, build our structures, and all we've done is we've said, I'm going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When I really want to eat... Is this making sense? I want to eat from the tree of life. So... Spirit of the prophets, subject to the prophets. What does it mean? It simply means that one who proclaims God's message has personal control over when and what to say. Look back at verse 30. It says this, But if anything is revealed to another, he who sits, let the first keep silent. Meaning, somebody's going to have to control themselves and shut up. Somebody at some point is going to have to control themselves and shut up. Now, is that what we want, quiet? No. Do we want everything to be perfect and absolutely clean? No. Cemeteries are like that. I saw a documentary recently on Arlington National Seminary. Has anybody ever been there? What did I say? It, it's, they're very close. They're very, very close. Was that a Freudian slip? Oh. I know someone who came out of seminary with a doctorate in theology. And about six months after he got out, he got saved. True story. It's a true story. I know the guy. Seminary, sorry about that. Has anybody ever been to Arlington National Cemetery? Let me see your hand. It's moving, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's, I mean, it's a very, like, when I saw the documentary on it, I was tearing up. I was like, this is amazing to think about from Civil War time all the way to where we are now. We've got these people who fought and died in these wars. It's just, it's moving to me. And I look at it, and I, they had pictures of how they would do burials and services and different types of services. And one thing I noticed was when they put the headstones in, the way they lined it up, and if you look in Arlington National Cemetery, if you, you can stand in just about any direction, you will see symmetry. You can stand it and see them lined up this way. If you turn at a 45-degree angle, they're perfectly lined up that way. If you turn this way, they're perfectly lined up like this. They're perfect. There's all kinds of order in a cemetery, but there's no life there. (laughs) There's all kinds of chaos in that nursery back there. And it's messy. There's dirty diapers, there's food on the floor, and there's toys everywhere. But there's life there. 
You see what this is about? You see that ultimately what God is wanting to bring to us is life. It's not death. And when we take Scripture and turn it into, this is how you do it right here. I've been there, guys. I've done that. Bought the T-shirt, wore it out. Hate it. Hate it. That's not... Why am I saying all of this? Because we, we are predisposed to it. We want it. We want that because it makes us feel safe. I've said this before. I love, somebody posted the other day and asked me, I think it was you, Jessica. Where are you? You said something about 10 favorite books, right? And I didn't list them and I haven't put them out there yet, but immediately the ones that came to mind, one of them was Chronicles of Narnia. One of my favorites of all times. All time. You remember when Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver? Concerning Aslan, and she goes, is he safe? She goes, oh, no, no, no. Mr. Beaver answers, no, 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 dear. He's not safe at all, but he is good. What we want is safety in our Christianity. What we really need to find is what's good. And I guarantee you, the closer you get to him, the more unsafe you are. (laughs) In your natural sense, in our natural sense of thinking, we're not. But the more we allow and make room for him to do what he wants to do, it's like, okay, this gets a little weird. I know that. I, trust me, I know that it gets weird, but I'm okay with that. I am growing in my love for awkward. <laughs> Ask my wife. I am. I'm growing in my love for the awkward. It's usually right in those places where God will usually show up and do something. If we want it safe, if we want it nice and clean, we miss what he's trying to do. That word subject here, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The word subject literally means to stand under. Holy Spirit puts himself under the control and responsibility of the possessor. Again, yielding is the point. Yielding is the point. There is no such thing. Well, there is. It's just not biblical. When someone says, well, the spirit of God came on me and I just had to do this. Well, not really. You don't just have to do that. You don't. There's no such thing. Again, stop. Ask the question. Okay, Lord, I feel it. Anybody ever feel the Spirit come on them and it just starts moving them physically? I felt it before. I felt it when I was like 10 years old, sitting in my dad's church. We got to the point in worship, and I could feel tongues, a tongue coming out specifically. I mean, it was like I was sweating. I was red. I, was, I could feel it in my body, and I was like, I was so scared. I was so, so scared. And it's quiet, and this is the right time. I'm 10 years old. And all of a sudden, I, like, I had a choice, and I knew I had the choice. I could bring this or I could restrict it. And you know what I did? I restricted it because I was scared. I sat there and sat there and sat there, and finally that feeling went away. And then somebody stands up and they give the word. Can we for a moment trust, trust that God knows a little bit more about this than we do? Can we just for a minute trust him? Is that ideally what God wanted? No, because he was giving me something to speak. He wanted me to do that. That's what he, that was what was in his heart. But you know what? His heart is also for all of us. And so ultimately, I don't say it. Somebody stands up and says it. And when they say it, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. That I knew it. My knower to my core, I knew it. That was exactly what I was supposed to say. Not necessarily the, the tongue itself, exactly. I'm just saying when they spoke it, I could feel it resonate in my spirit. That was exactly what needed to be said. Somebody stands up and gives an interpretation. Oh, and by the way... When there's an interpretation of tongues, guys, it's not a translation of tongues. It's an interpretation of tongues. When I was younger, I used to sit in church and hear somebody speak in tongues, and I would time it. And then I'd wait for the translation, and sometimes it wouldn't be the same thing. 
I would hear somebody speak in tongues for a long period of time, and then somebody would stand up and say, God said this, da-da-da-da-da, and be done. Wait, he just said more than that. No, it's not a translation. It's an interpretation of tongues. Come on, this is a revelation for somebody in here, right? Please understand that. You don't need to give up and stand up and give an interpretation based on the approximate length of the word that was given. Say what God says. We talked about this last week. The best thing you can do is say what God says, and when he stops talking, you stop talking. And be done. I shared with you the story of a prophetic school that was going on, and 10 people got up to prophesy over this one individual. I'm going to pick on you for a minute. 10 people stand up and are released to prophesy over this individual. Get words for them. Now, we, I love that. I think that's fun to do that. This is great, like, icebreakers at parties. <laughs> Again, though, I like awkward. So 10 people stand up, and they deliver prophetic words. There's one person sitting in the back that's not a member of the 10. And they feel the Spirit of God come on them, and all they hear God saying is, say she's got on a yellow shirt. Well, I'm picking on you because yours is kind of yellow. The lady had on a yellow shirt, okay? So all these people prophesy. Then one in the back stands up and goes, you have on a yellow shirt. Of course, in the natural, everybody's going, well, duh, (laughs) Captain Obvious. And immediately that woman breaks down, falls on the floor, just weeping and going, God, you heard me. Because she had told God before she walked into that meeting that if she, if God, if you're going to heal my autistic son, tell somebody to tell me I have on a yellow shirt. Isn't that cool? Now what happened in that situation was the individual saw that the person fell on the floor and started crying. And so they said, the sun is yellow and, and smiley faces are yellow. And what did they do? They saw something happen and felt like, oh, I need to keep this going. When all they needed to do was just say what God said to do and be done with it. Right? Why am I bringing this up? I see it happen in our charismatic Pentecostal circles a lot. Somebody will say something. Somebody will begin to cry or begin to manifest. And they feel like, oh, man, I've got it now. And they just start going for it. And it's like, did God tell you to say that? I, I, would, I know, but, you know, we're human, right? We've got this humanity. We've got these tendencies in us because all of us want to be liked and all of us want to be important. The heart of the scripture of what he's really talking about here, guys, is learning how to yield, learning how to understand what honor really looks like. Verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's writing to this church here, and he's saying, listen, God's not confusing. He's not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace, absolute peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, you guys in Corinth, you're not that special. That you've got all this stuff. Did you know that in 1 Corinthians 12, the reason why the language is structured as it is in 1 Corinthians 12, where it says, for by the Spirit, he gave one word of wisdom. By the same Spirit, word of knowledge. By the same Spirit, prophecy. And by the same Spirit, do you know why he had to say that? Because this is a Greek culture. This is a Greek culture. What do we know about the Greeks? It's lots of gods, wasn't it? It was a myriad of gods, and all of these gods in that culture were always fighting each other. They wanted to see who could be on top, who was the best. And so when the Corinthian church got a hold of these gifts, they were equating them, saying, well, this one's from Zeus. Well, this one's from Apollos. Well, this gift over here. And so they were warring and butting heads with it, trying to figure out who could be the best. That's why he's addressing this stuff going on in the church, saying, you guys are still doing it. You come together and you speak with tongues and everybody's speaking in tongues because everybody's trying to get a leg up on the other person. 
Now, I can only imagine what it looked like, but it had to be an absolute chaos. Wherever there is somebody, self-ambition, wherever that happens, it's going to be chaotic, especially when the gifts of the Spirit begin to flow because they're subject to us. We can hear from God, but then we can turn it into something else. Hello? I don't know about you, but there's something about the fear of the Lord that should settle in on us when it comes to operating in the gifts. The fear of the Lord settle in on us, and we recognize, man, I can create something with the words I'm about to say. I may have told you this before, but a number of years, well, it was right after we moved here, about five years ago. We moved here. It was one of those huge faith leaps. I had no idea how we were going to survive. Started my own business, but it took a while to get it rolling. And I remember at one point, we were $5,000 short of making our bills. I don't know about you guys, but to me, that's a substantial amount of money. I was $5,000 short. And my wife and I, we took off out of the house, and we decided to go for a walk. And when we walked past our mailbox, that 1 Corinthians 12 gift, the gift of faith, right? You know what that one is? Gift of faith came over me. I walked past our mailbox, and I said, I want $5,000 in that mailbox by tomorrow. And we kept walking. But when I said it, it wasn't just something about, you know, I felt the gift of faith come on me. You know what happened 24 hours later? I went to get the mail. You know what I found in my mailbox? Did not find $5,000. I found $5,400. The next day, just somebody decided to give us a gift from two different locations. You remember that? How awesome that was? And I remember at that point just feeling exuberant and wonderful, opening it up and seeing that that check was in the mail. But I, I also recognized, too, that, man, I need to be careful with what I say here. Because I can feel the gift of faith come on me, and I can use that in a wrong way. I can use that to get my own needs met. I actually had the feeling, and, and I felt this. The fear of the Lord came on me where I felt like if I were to say ping pong balls fall out of the sky, they would have done it. It would have happened. Ping pong balls would have started falling out of the sky. That's how much faith I had on me at the time. And I recognized I need to be very, very careful with this. But it takes a yielding. It takes an understanding that this is not about me. This is about the edification, the building up, the encouragement of the church. I want all this. I need all this. I need prophetic words to flow through everyone like water. Why? Because I need it. I need the encouragement. I need the edification. Look over real quick to James chapter 3. I'm, gonna get, I'm getting close to done. Are you guys still tracking with me? I know I ask that all the time, and you guys give me the courteous yes. James chapter 3. Listen to this. Who is wise and understanding among you? James chapter 3, verse 13. Sorry. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, listen, confusion and every evil thing are there. Have you guys ever been in a situation where you're just really, really confused? Okay, take it to the bank. There's self-seeking, there's envy, there's something going on there. There's something, this is really good for husbands and wives. Uh-oh. If there's real confusion there, self-seeking exists. And every evil thing are there. But look, here's the answer, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above, it's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. 
full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Remember what we just read here in 1 Corinthians 14. He's not the author of confusion. He's the author of peace. Yielding is the key. Look at verse 34 and 35. Oh, wait, yeah. I'm just going to real shortly say this. If we, if we try to take this passage of Scripture and build our structures out of it, guess what? All you women need to be quiet. Never talk in church again. I'm just saying, because it's right here. It's in the same context. He's addressing the same thing. Look at verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak. They are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, come on. Are you kidding me? This is crazy, isn't it? I've seen doctrines built on this that are ludicrous. I mean, this is crazy. You have to ask the question, what was the cultural context and what was he addressing in the church? Here's what he's addressing. The, the church flowing in these gifts, crazy flowing in these gifts. In that culture, by the way, women were seen as objects. Okay? They were. Paul was breaking the mold. Paul was like totally this avant-garde, crazy, freaking people out with what he was preaching. Because he was talking about, go to the end of Romans 16 and you'll see it, where there's a list of five or six women there where he's talking about prophets, prophetesses, and greet them. They're leaders in the church. Well, what are you doing, Paul? You're writing this and saying that it's shameful for women to speak in church. Well, which one is it? Understand what he's writing to. In the context here, this cultural context, you had women who would sit on one side of the room and men would sit on the other side of the room. It's not like what we have here. Women would sit on one side, men would sit on the other side. The spirit would begin to flow. Prophecy would come. Tongues would come out. And the women were sitting on the other side asking questions, going, what does that mean? What's going on there? What is that about? This is what he's addressing. He's not saying it's not right for women to speak in church, ever. He's saying, with what you're doing in the church right now, that's what's wrong. If you need, and he goes on to say, if they need to ask questions, wait till you get home to ask the questions. What you don't want is the interruption of what God's doing in the church. Is this making sense? Because you can't take scripture, pull out what I call proof texting, or take a passage of scripture. No passage of scripture is monolithic. No passage of scripture is monolithic. You could take things, if you wanted to live like that with scripture, you're going to get in trouble. Judas went and hanged himself. Go and do likewise. Well, I can build all kinds of theologies if I take text out of context of what they're written. This was written to a church, again, that had lost its way. They're completely out of order. They're not getting the ultimate of what God has for them. So verse 34 and 35, keep it in context. Look at verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached, pointing to the fact that no one carries the entire word? Hence the importance of all of us bringing what God has. Verse 37 and verse 38 here. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. This is where he's having to, to defend his apostleship. Again, when he wrote, he came to them. In the first part of 1 Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, I didn't come with persuasive words of man's wisdom. I came with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And he's saying, right here, he's saying, listen, the things that I write to you, they're the commandments of the Lord, okay? He's called me to be an apostle to the church to bring this doctrine to you. Understand that. 
And he says, if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Literally, he's saying, if one will not recognize authority when he sees it, then don't recognize him. Hello? This is where the honor comes in. Honor is such a big deal. We are not islands unto ourselves. Scripture and prophecy are not of our own private interpretation. We bring these in and we recognize. Let me give you an example. This, this is really funny. I didn't even plan this. Last night, um, I came to uh, Greg and Valerie's Firestarters. They use the building here on Saturday nights once a month. And I love that. Whenever I can come, I love to be a part of it. But this is, for all intents and purposes, I'm kind of the leader of this building, right? I have a responsibility with what happens here as the pastor. You know, it's like my name's on the lease, the building and stuff. But I don't walk in here going, I'm the man. (laughs) You know why I don't do that? Because the minute I do that, I will miss what God is wanting to say. I'm not an island unto myself. I I recognize my authority and where it is. But I recognize when I walk into fire starters, there's somebody else that's carrying authority there. You guys with me? Recognize that. Jesus talks about it. He says, listen, when you go sit down at the table, don't sit down at the head. Sit down at the foot. Because if you sit at the head, you might have somebody come to you and say, hey, you need to move down there. It's much better for you to come in with the attitude of, I'll take the low seat. And then have him come in and say, you know what? I'm going to move you up here to the front. You see the difference? Honor. Honor. Honor what's going on in the house. Make sure that we understand what we're submitting to. And remember, submission is, means literally to stand under. It's a choice. It doesn't mean to cower under. It doesn't mean to cave under. It means to say, I'm going to stand under that. When I came in last night, what did I do? I come in and I stand under it. Did I hear the Lord speaking to me things? When they were, they were prophesying over people right in here. Did I hear the Lord speak, hearing things? Yes, I did. But I'm also asking, is that for me to do? Is that for me to say? Is that for them to say? And I held on to it. Until, I didn't never feel like I was getting somewhere with it, like this is what I was supposed to say, so I just let it ride. Trusting that, God, you're going to say whatever it is that you need to say. Hopefully this is helping us. This is helping us this morning. Okay. True spirituality. True spirituality recognizes the spirit in others. Paul is not asserting his authority, but showing what happens when apostolic authority is rejected. This is where it gets turned around. If you can give me five more minutes. He's not trying to exert, exert apostolic authority. If I were to try to exert my authority in this room, you know what it would do? It would squash everything. But at the same time, I have to show where authority is. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying there is authority, but I'm not trying to, the minute I try to exert my authority is when I start to lose it. (laughs) I'll put it this way. It's all about attitude, honor. When you think you have it, and when that attitude of having it goes up, your authority goes down. You ever notice that when somebody brings something? Somebody can bring a word, and there's an attitude behind it that feels like, well, I've got this thing. And their authority is like really low. But then somebody will come up and go, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I feel like the Lord's saying this. And bam, it's like, whoa, did you feel the weight in that? Isn't that awesome? Verse 39 and 40. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decency, decently and in order. Again, this phrase that parallels verse 33, it has, doesn't have anything to do with a preset order or controlling agenda, but the purpose of the public worship service, which is to encounter Jesus. Everybody stand up with me. Is this helping at all? Yes. 
Okay, I got the gratuitous yes. Yeah. Yeah. I really should have had us do that, but we'll do it now. Um, okay, just pray with me. Hold your hands out for a minute. Okay, Jesus. Lord and Savior, wonderful King. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy, for your goodness, for your kindness. Worship you, Lord. Worship you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, what we're saying is we don't know. And what we think we know, we give you permission to go ahead and move that around if you have to. That's really our heart. That's really what we're saying here. But Lord, above all, we choose as a church, me as a person, I'm choosing to take on Philippians chapter 2. That we look out not only for our own interest, but for the interest of others. That we are so not about ourselves that we take your model and we say that you, the God, the Christ, set aside your divine prerogative, came to this planet, taking on the form of man, you humbled yourself even to the point of death. That, Lord, that's not something you can bestow on us. It's an attitude we choose. We choose humility. You guys know that. Never once in the Bible you can ever find where it says, God, humble us. It never says that. It always says, humble yourself. You can't ask God for humility. He's given everything you need for that. You just have to walk in it. So we choose low road. We choose the low side of the table. And we say, Lord, we want everything that you have for us. But we choose humility. Everybody say that with me. I choose humility. Yeah, that feels good. That feels really good. Because, Lord, we know ultimately we will get further along with you when we walk in humility. When we model the very thing that you modeled. Not looking out for our own interests, but for the interests of others.